So let's say this, you followed the Watto algorithm where you overtreat the B12 deficiency and then they're super therapeutic. <laughs> and, and the patient still has painful neuropathy. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, Matt. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We hope. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi, Matt. And Dr. Paul Williams. Hello, Matt. Oh, hi, Paul. What about me? And tonight, I am excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Grace Kimbaris. Dr. Kimbaris is an assistant professor of clinical neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. She graduated from Boston University School of Medicine and completed a residency in neurology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, where she stayed to complete a fellowship in neuromuscular medicine. And we asked Dr. Kimbaris to come on just to kind of give us some tips on neuropathy because it's a very common complaint we see in primary care. And we are glad to have her. Hi, Grace. Hi. Excited to be here. Well, thank you very much uh, for taking the time uh, away from your lovely husband, who is a good friend. <laughs> uh, we usually start out with our pick of the week. Cue the music. <laughs> uh, Grace, since you're the guest, would you like to give your pick of the week first? could be anything, book, movie, website. I wish, Whatever. You could, I wish you could be here and just watch Matt record this. He's like dancing around his mic. It's Matt sounds really excited right now. <laughs> I think he is excited. I could talk in monotone if, if you guys prefer. You could, but that's, that's kind of my job. Matt comes to life on the air. I can already <laughs> tell. Um, so my pick of the week, I'm going to say, is this show called The Night Manager. Have you guys heard of it? No. Nope. No. No. Okay, so it was actually a British show. It was on BBC, but it's on Amazon Prime now. And I both started and finished it this week. Um, it doesn't have that many episodes, but it's very addicting. But it's actually based on a novel about a hotel night manager who basically ends up becoming an undercover government agent to expose international arms dealers that are going around. Um, it's actually... A really good show. It's got a little bit of romance. It's got some thrill. It's got um, some scenery. It's based mostly in Spain, and then they sort of travel all over. So it's got a little bit of everything. Um, so I definitely recommend it. It's on Amazon Prime. I uh, I am terribly afraid of uh, shows like that. If if it's addicting, then I am. How many hours of my life are we talking about here that I'm going to burn through? Um, probably six or seven. It's okay. A, that's not too bad. Continue. Yeah, it's a mini it's not series. Too bad. Yeah. It's it's short, and I don't know if there's another episode. I haven't let myself look yet. Another season. I haven't let myself look. It it I'm just looking it up on ye old Wikipedia, but it's only six episodes. Okay. Yeah, a couple uh, summers ago, I started to watch The Wire, and sixty hours later, I had watched all sixty episodes. <laughs> so, you know, you got to know yourself, Paul. Yeah, this is less of a commitment than that. <laughs> Uh, since since you mentioned watching stuff, I got to ask Paul how is he, how is your three sixty five and three sixty five going? You're talking about movies, it's, it's great. Yeah, no, there's been a drop off in quality um, already. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll see where the year takes me. But so far, I'm I'm still caught up. It's going it's going okay. Can you be specific about the drop off in quality? As in your pick of the week? 
Oh, well, I'd happily talk about the pick of the week, which is actually ironically not something that I watched um, as part of this thing, but I, I went to for comfort. But it's, I felt like it started out really strong, and then it was probably somewhere around, you know, Ouija Origins of Evil that I realized <laughs> I was rapidly running out of movies um, that were going to be as high quality as what I started with. Uh, or Event Horizon was probably one of the weaker entries. But uh, I'm still going strong. So for the pick of the week, it's this is actually something I'd seen before I started this dumb project of mine. Um, I saw it in theaters. It's it's uh, the 2015 film The Witch, um, sometimes stylized as the VVITCH, um, which is uh, this this period piece. is directed by this guy named Robert Eggers. It was actually his debut um, from the studio called A24 Studios, or I think A24, but it, it doesn't really matter. Um, but in any case, it's this Puritan family that is sort of cast out or leaves their village and goes into the woods to sort of live by themselves. And it's um, and then or maybe or maybe not tormented by a witch and Satan. And just uh, it's just it's a really ominous, creepy movie. It's almost sort of like a 17th century shining. If that makes any kind of sense. It's more atmospheric um, and episodic than it is sort of straightforward narrative. And it kind of gives you a sense of what it was like to sort of live out on the edge of nothing and feel like you're kind of surrounded by evil. You can, and I, what I like about this, you can actually impose whatever interpretation you want on it. So for the current time and political climate, you could say it's what happens to people when they're isolated and how hysteria and paranoia take over. Um, whereas I think when I first watched it, I, I sort of interpreted it as each of the family members paying for individual sins. But it's a really neat, really creepy movie um, that's just gorgeously filmed and worth a watch if you've not seen it. So, so Paul, Paul, did you just call the Curbsiders this dumb project? No, no, not, no, my movie watching project is dumb. Oh. Uh, I didn't explicitly call the Curbsiders a dumb project, at least usually I don't on the air. <laughs> I, <laughs> not explicitly. I hope that's the poll. Paul, <laughs> Paul, when uh, you first mentioned The Witch, I, I thought you were talking about Vin Diesel's The Last Witch Hunter, which uh, I haven't <laughs> seen yet, but I have to imagine is uh, should be part of your 365 for this year. I imagine it's high yeah, quality. Yeah, probably one of the greatest movies um, <laughs> ever made. <laughs> Or I might be confusing with Bewitch, the the fantastic Will Ferrell success, which was also really super strong. I love that movie. <laughs> a little bit of sarcasm there. I'm going to recommend a book, a book that I read over uh, the Christmas holiday. It's called The One Thing. It is basically a book because I have um, I was recently accused of suffering from eclecticism, which I looked up and apparently it's a real word. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I have a lot of you know, a lot of things going on. And this is, this one thing is a book basically about like kind of focusing your energies, trying to finish the projects that you're starting. And when you're, when you're approaching tasks, you think, is this going to help me achieve the one thing that I'm trying to achieve today or this week or whatever? It's a very good book, especially if you're like me and, and you have trouble focusing on a project. This, this book was really helpful for kind of just focusing. That's good. Stuart? Yeah, so my pick of the week is is another book on leadership. Um, well, I guess it wasn't actually a book last time. It was a sedentary activity. Anyways, so it's Lincoln on leadership. It's uh, It, it kind of details Lincoln's philosophy on leadership and his – th- there's not a lot of writings that um, really focus on Lincoln's style of leadership. So this uses a lot of secondary resources and some of his quotes from his speeches and helps to compile his uh, leadership philosophy, which is somewhat interesting if you are at, at least engaged peripherally um, in some type of a, a, a leadership role. Um, it helps to understand kind of the servant leader philosophy. And I, I think that he kind of embodies um, what we what we envision as a servant leader and what true leadership is, which we've moved away from in the modern era, more towards managerial 
um, the, 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 the managership, I suppose, if you would call it that, versus leadership, true leadership. What do you mean the servant leadership thing? Does it define it in this book? Yeah, so uh, there's an acronym that I that I live by. It's called LIBWA, Lead by Walking Around. The idea is that you um, you go down to the trenches uh, and you see what what your followers are doing, what they're experiencing, and it gives you a different perspective to solve the problems. Well, I think the leadership books definitely. Um, I've read a couple in the past year, just. And we've talked about this on air before, but you, you kind of in medicine, you're thrown into leadership roles right. and you don't necessarily have any formal training in leadership. Some people are better than at it at it than others. Um, I definitely I was I was OK at leading myself, not necessarily others. So it, after intern year, I had a little bit of a rough transition. It, it's kind of funny because one of the things that he talks about in the book is that w- what really separates a, a good leader from a bad leader is actually their childhood. Generally, they have a set of parents, one that they hate, and then one they really liked. And so that diametric relationship between the good and the bad helps them to, to have this idea of who they are and what they stand for. And you see that with a, with a lot of really powerful leaders. Um, and so a lot of what makes a good leader is not necessarily something that you choose to do, not necessarily, not necessarily something that you learn, but something you're kind of instilled with a, to some degree. But you can learn how to be a good leader. Um, and oftentimes it, it's, it, there's something else that, that could have happened in your life to give you that kind of a, a juxtaposition between the good and the bad to help to highlight what works and what doesn't work. Well, I, I didn't hate either one of my parents, but, uh, well, it, you know, hate's a strong <laughs> <Yeah>. word. <laughs> I, I think so. Okay. Next, uh, I do want to jump and move on to the, the talking points on neuropathy. Grace, I always like to start off by asking our guests, uh, whenever we have an expert on a topic, just if you had to give sort of a Wikipedia style introduction to the topic of neuropathy, how would you how would you characterize that well i mean most people when they talk about neuropathy they're really talking about what we'll get to which is distal symmetric polyneuropathy so if you're talking about that i mean the way i usually explain it to patients is it's a disease of their nerves that typically starts in the feet with things like numbness tingling burning and over time may slowly progress higher up their feet and then eventually to involve their fingers um that's sort of how I, I think that's how patients can sort of um, perceptualize it. But if you know, you want to get into the difference between different types of neuropathy and how distal symmetric polyneuropathy is different from mononeuropathies or radiculopathies, um, we probably need to do a little bit of review of the neuroanatomy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll try to keep it as pain, painless as possible. Thank you. Um, but for the sake of people in internal medicine and non-neurologists, I mean, really neuropathy is just a description of pathology of a certain nerve. So that's just a certain part of the body. It doesn't imply causation. It doesn't imply mechanism. You're really just describing a phenotype. Um, so distal symmetric polyneuropathy is typically, it's length dependent. It starts in the distal nerves. Um, versus, you know, if you're going to start, let's say you have all the information coming down your spinal cord at each level of the um, vertebrae, you're going to have a spinal nerve root. Those carry some motor information, some sensory information. They exit the spinal canal at each level. And then in the arms, those roots will enter into the brachial plexus. And then from that plexus, you get actually named individual nerves. So those are things like the median nerve, which is affected in carpal tunnel, the ulnar nerve, 
um, and then those each have their own smaller, more superficial branches. And then in the legs, you have a similar plexus that branches out into things like the sciatic nerve, the tibial nerve, et cetera. Um, so really the, the words we use, radiculopathy, mononeuropathy, polyneuropathy, just refer to a different part of that system. So if something's being affected at the level of the root as it's exiting the spinal canal, that's radiculopathy, regardless of what the cause is. The cause could be compressive, as it usually is in people with arthritis and degenerative disease. It could be inflammatory if something ha if someone has something inflammatory in their CSF going on. Um, and then a mononeuropathy really just means neuropathy of one nerve. So a carpal tunnel is mononeuropathy. It's a median mononeuropathy. Um, so I think the terms can get, sort of people can get bogged down in the terms, but really neurologists are all about localization. So trying to figure out where the problem might be. And then from that, you can try to infer what the common cause is affecting that, that part of the body might be. And just for simplicity's sake, we do want to focus on the distal symmetric polyneuropathy, at least for the majority of the show today. And I wanted to ask, what are some of the most common causes of that? Um, of course, diabetes is one of them. But beyond that, what else should we think about when someone presents with, with that kind of symptom? Yeah. So, I mean, typically it's something that is is slowly progressive. So for typical distal symmetric polyneuropathy, maybe it started with some tingling in their toes, usually years ago, maybe months ago, and then only slowly over years is really progressing maybe up to their ankles, eventually up to their knees. Um, and uh, diabetes is obviously, it is by far the most common cause um, so the AAN actually recommends only sending three or four tests for a distal symmetric polyneuropathy because those are the highest yield and those are either potentially associated with systemic diseases or are potentially treatable. Um, so diabetes, uh, some tests of diabetes, so typically a glucose tolerance test, and, and most people these days are sending an A1C, although it's debated what the sensitivity of that is compared to a glucose tolerance test, but some measure of glucose tolerance a B12 level, um, and then an SPEP with immunofixation to look for a paraproteinemia, which if the SPEP is abnormal in a certain way, that can be associated with specific paraproteinemic diseases. Um, and that's really it for distal symmetric polyneuropathy. I mean, there are several other causes that are less common. Really, I think whether you need to send more depends on the history. So we often take a really detailed history what other medical history people have, whether they've had cancer, what kind of treatments they got. A lot of people who have been treated and are in remission years ago really won't mention it to you necessarily, um, whether they've had a gastric bypass and maybe at risk for nutritional deficiencies. It's surprising how many people won't tell you they've had gastric bypass. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you know, you ask them um, and they say, oh, by the way, I, I did have some procedure done. How much weight have you lost? And they'll say, oh, I lost 80 pounds in the last six months. And you know, I never followed up and I don't take my vitamins. So people just don't mention that. It doesn't show up on a traditional past medical history list. You know, it often doesn't even show up on their surgical history list. Oftentimes it's sort of a, a minimal procedure. Um, so it's important to ask. So you'll get further, I think, by, by spending more time on the history. And Grace, is there a linear relationship between, particularly in regards to diabetic polyneuropathy, between glycemic control and symptoms, or is it fairly variable from patient to patient? Um, so there are studies looking at different levels of glucose intolerance. So, I mean, larger epidemiologic studies looking at people with definitely diabetes, people with um, below that, people with sort of impaired glucose tolerance tests, 
and below that people with impaired fasting glucose, and then people who have normal glycemia, as best we can tell. And there is sort of a, a gradation as you get closer to diabetes um, of the prevalence of neuropathy and neuropathic symptoms. The difference between fasting glucose, let's say, or, or abnormal glucose tolerance test is sort of less. I think in larger studies, it's been like between 11 versus 13 percent, whereas the incident, the prevalence in diabetes is probably closer to 25 percent. Um, but there does seem to be some sort of graded, uh, graded prevalence. And to, to summarize there, you can have prediabetes and have polyneuropathy, which, which might, be, might have been caused by that, that prediabetes, that impaired glucose tolerance. You don't necessarily have to have full-blown diabetes, at least by our arbitrary yeah. cutoffs that we use. Right. I mean, it's, it's, still an, it's definitely a debate. There's still some controversy about it. Um, you know, it's sort of interesting that no one debates that diabetes is associated with neuropathy and causes neuropathy, but yet people still debate that pre-diabetes does. I mean, I think it's a spectrum. Um, and if you believe that diabetes does, then I don't think it's that hard to believe that just 1%, 0.1% difference in your A1C <laughs> could have also caused it, right? I mean, it like you said, it, they, they are a bit arbitrary, um, but if someone does have probably impaired glucose tolerance but not frank diabetes over years, then that probably can cause a polyneuropathy as well. Grace, I wanted to ask you about fluoroquinolones because it's one of my favorite things to point out in teaching clinic to residents uh, who love to just give everyone fluoroquinolones for their uncomplicated UTI, which you shouldn't do. Right. Uh, could you, can you speak to that? How, how uh, likely is it for them to cause a neuropathy and would it be a, a, a distal uh, symmetric polyneuropathy that, that those cause? So this is pretty controversial, too, actually. Um, you know, the the main issue with invoking cause for any type of neuropathy is that, again, to say someone has a neuropathy or to confirm it by EMG is just describing the phenotype. You know that the nerves are damaged. You can never invoke a cause. Um, you, can, you can feel pretty sure of it based on large epidemiologic studies and long-term data, um, but, but you can't really ever say definitely that there was a cause. And so the way that fluoroquinolones um, came to be labeled as having neuropathy, I mean, the FDA changed the labeling a few years ago to specifically address this. And that at the time was really mostly based on case reports. Um, there was a big online community about this, patients sort of reporting their, their own effects and, and forming a, a union about it. And then um, also the reported adverse effects that, it, that had come back. And there really wasn't any good data at the time that it was thought to be causal, yet they, they labeled it as such. And so since then, there have been some um, articles. There was one that came out in neurology, I think, a few years ago. It was a case control study. So they used sort of health tech data, I think, from LifeLink, um, looking at, at a huge number of men. And they actually looked at people who were diagnosed as having either drug-induced polyneuropathy or idiopathic neuropathy. And the good thing about this is they were actually able to exclude they excluded anyone with diabetes or any prediabetes um, from either of the cases of the controls and ended up with about 6,000 cases of neuropathy. And they looked at how many of those patients had been prescribed a fluoroquinolone at any point in the last year, and it was something like 20%, <laughs> which I thought was a huge number. Yeah. But I guess isn't that surprising, you know, thinking about how often they're used and right. different things they're used for. 
Um, and the case reports that most of them um, actually talk about a pretty acute onset neuropathy. So it's not your typical distal symmetric neuropathy. Um, I think about a third say that it starts immediately, like within 24 hours. And then the majority, something like 80 or 90% of what's been reported start within a week. Now that may be because it's easier to invoke causality if it occurs right after you take it, you know, maybe then mm -hmm. people think of it more and then report it. Um, but in this case control study of the people who had gotten fluoroquinolones, they looked separately to see who had gotten them just in the two weeks before the reported neuropathy. And there was a difference in the fluoroquinolone group. Um, sorry, there was, there was a difference in the neuropathy versus non-neuropathy group in terms of who had gotten how many people had gotten fluoroquinolones in the last two weeks, but it was something like 2% versus 1%. Um, there really aren't other good large studies about this. Um, I think patients definitely have read about it and believe in it. And um, I think it, it probably exists, but it's definitely, there's not enough data out there for me to feel completely convinced. I mean, I think when you talk about whether a med causes something, it's, sort of clinically relevant because, you know, you have to decide if the patient really needs that medication and then what other alternatives might exist. So, so Grace, that, that kind of brings us to the next point. Uh, this is Stuart here. Um, so, so knowing that distal symmetric polyneuropathy is actually pretty common amongst our patient population with, uh, with diabetes, um, just in general, what red flags, what, what things should we look out for that tells us that we need to send them for a neurology consultation? Yeah. Um, so it's a good question. So most unconcerning distal symmetric neuropathy will be something that really evolves very slowly. So over years, um, a typical distal symmetric polyneuropathy is really going to be sensory at first, and they should not really have prominent weakness early in their course. Um, so typically, people will have sensory symptoms that start in the toes. And then, you know, we talk about the stocking glove distribution by the time it gets up to around their knees or maybe the mid thighs, then they may start to have symptoms in their hands as well. So this is symptoms or based on exam findings. Um, and weakness is really not a prominent part of it. Um, you know, the most we can pick up in some people with a typical neuropathy, maybe toe extension weakness, which is not something that people normally test and probably not something that people are going to complain about. Um, sometimes, the next thing to be affected would be weakness and sort of standing on your heels, so with ankle dorsiflexion. So if you're, if you're short for time and you just want to see if there's motor weakness, those are two probably easy distal muscles to test. Um, but if it's anything quicker than that, so if they had the onset of their symptoms or if they're progressing really over a few weeks, definitely, and even over a few months, then I would say that's too fast for um, a typical neuropathy, and that may be related to something more acute, maybe a vasculitic neuropathy or something else, autoimmune um, or, or malignant or, or something, and that probably warrants further investigation. And um, any asymmetry, too, I mean, obviously it's named as distal symmetric polyneuropathy, but any asymmetry um, is concerning. And, you know, if, if they feel like one foot's a little more painful than the other, that that's not quite enough asymmetry to be concerned, but if they're clearly, you know, they have deficits on one side and not the other, or they're severe, they have severe weakness on one side and not the other, then you worry that you have something, you know, vasculitis neuropathies can often pick up, pick off individual named nerves. So they okay. can have a median neuropathy and then they can have a, 
a foot drop on one side. And then, you know, over time, if you accrue enough of these mononeuropathies, then people can look like they have a stocking glove distribution. Um, but if you go back to the history, you know, of how it all really started, then, then they'll have a much different story. Um, and then if, if there's anything else in the history, like there's some concern that other family members may have also had neuropathy, um, and most most patients won't tell you, yeah, my all my family members have neuropathy. They'll say something like, I was clumsy as a kid. You know, my other family members trip over their feet, or maybe people used walkers earlier in life than you would expect. Um, people with inherited neuropathies often have really high arches or hammer toes from such a chronic neuropathy. Um, and they, you, I ask them, you know, do, do, you, do your brother's feet look like this? Do your parents' feet look like this? And they'll often say yes. So if there's any concern for inherited neuropathy um, where they may have an atypical course or it may be important to know for other family planning issues or just inform other family members, um, then, then that could necessitate, you know, a, a consultation to neurology or, or further thought. And then the last thing is probably if they have significant autonomic symptoms, and that one is a little bit, you know, if they are diabetic and they've had diabetes for a while, then you can definitely get autonomic neuropathy with diabetes um, along with the neuropathy. Um, but, but if they don't clearly have diabetes and it may be from something else, yet they're having prominent autonomic involvement, then that's more concerning. Um, amyloid neuropathy tends to have prominent autonomic involvement. Some of the GBS variants, some of the small fiber neuropathies not caused by diabetes. So that would be atypical for a, tip, for a distal symmetric polyneuropathy. So Briefly, uh, Grace, I've got one question about diabetic uh, distal symmetric polyneuropathy. Um, my understanding is that it's predominantly an axonal pathology. So does it tend to affect free nerve endings before, say, myelinated nerve endings? When most people talk about it, we're talking about myelinated nerve endings being affected. So you have basically myelinated fibers, which are large fibers and, and conduct faster, and those carry things like vibration and position sense, so proprioception, and your reflexes are mediated by those, and, and motor strength usually as well. And then there's small fibers, quote, which are sort of thinly myelinated or unmyelinated fibers, which conduct much more slowly and usually mediate pain and temperature sensation. So um, some neuropathies can start off as small fiber neuropathies, so oftentimes diabetes can start that way, and then only as it progresses involve the large fibers as well. But when people talk about distal symmetric polyneuropathy, they're really referring to at least some large fiber involvement too. Okay. Um, and then small fiber neuropathy, when that's talked about, really excludes, it's sort of a, a condition where you've excluded that there's large fiber involvement. So when people talk about small fiber neuropathy, they're talking about exclusive small fiber involvement. Is that diagnosis made based on EMG studies, can, or can it be made just on physical exam? Do you need a nerve biopsy for that? So, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, exam, the exam is definitely by far the most important thing. And I think if you do a careful exam, there's debate about how much else you need to do if someone has a typical neuropathy exam and a typical story to go along with it. Um, I mean, for for a large fiber neuropathy or for any neuropathy, you know, people talk about whether every neuropathy patient should have an EMG at least some point in their life. And there really aren't guidelines published for 
when to do an EMG on someone with neuropathy. I mean, if someone has diabetes and they have a pretty typical story for neuropathy and they have a pretty typical exam for it and it's been getting worse slowly over 10 years, um, and, you know, and you put them on some gabapentin, then I'm not really sure that they need an EMG. In fact, diabetic neuropathy isn't a, a code, you can, a diagnosis you can usually get an EMG covered for. So um, some people do it just to sort of document it, and it can be tracked over time if the patient were to worsen unexpectedly in the future. Oftentimes, patients don't want to have it, and if it's not really going to change anything, then you could argue you don't really need it. Um, you know, it's also not perfectly sensitive. So there are people with diabetes who don't have neuropathy symptoms or neuropathy findings on exam, and their EMGs will be slightly abnormal. Or there are people who do have neuropathy and their EMGs might be normal by our normative data and maybe because they have predominantly small fiber involvement. So if you see someone and you're going to work them up for neuropathy anyway, and you're not really going to use the data from the EMG to change what you're doing, then you could argue you don't really need it. Um, if they have any of those sort of red flag symptoms or, or atypical features, then, then it could definitely be helpful. And then small fiber neuropathy um, basically refers to a situation where the EMG is normal. So the reason for that is that the nerves that we check on EMG, the nerves that we measure, are measure the fastest conducting fibers. Um, and so if there is large fiber involvement, the EMG will likely be abnormal. Um, if it's only small fiber involvement, the EMG is actually going to be normal. So this is, I think, where a lot of the confusion about the diagnosis of a small fiber neuropathy comes into play. Patients are told they could have a neuropathy, but the EMG was normal, you know, and they often have a lot of pain, um, and it's sort of poorly characterized unless you do a good exam, and then they sort of get labeled as just maybe having chronic pain or something like that. So. The way to diagnose a small fiber neuropathy would be to do something called, a, it's a skin biopsy, um, sort of at speci a specific site. So usually if, um, above the lateral ankle um, is where you do a skin biopsy. It's just a skin punch biopsy that you can do at the bedside. Um, and it basically measures epidermal nerve fiber density. And there's normative data, and they look at a person's data. It's a now a commercial lab test that you can send to a pathology lab. Um, and if you're in the less than fifth percentile, um, then that constitutes small fiber neuropathy. So you can do the confirmative test. Um, like the EMG, some patients won't want to do it. And if they have the story for it and the exam for it, then, you know, you may defer doing it anyway and just do the workup that you were going to do. So, but that is the way that you would try to confirm a small fiber neuropathy. So you also can't get that covered by insurance unless you have a normal EMG. So if someone only has small fiber complaints um, and you don't really think the EMG is going to be abnormal, you still sort of have to do it if you want to do the skin biopsy. Huh. <laughs> Excellent. That seems like one of those tests maybe uh, – do you, do you need it? I mean, if someone has, like, painful neuropathy, aren't you just going to treat them symptomatically anyway? It does the small fiber right. – does the biopsy for small fiber neuropathy really help you much or does it change much? Not always. Um, the, it seems that people use it in two different ways. So it's not, some people use it in people who they think have it anyway and they just want a confirmatory test. And then it's definitely used for people who want to dissuade a patient that they have small fiber neuropathy. Um, they don't really think they have it. 
and they sort of want a test to be able to tell them that they don't have it, and then they could move on to other things on the differential. Well, can can we take a step back and just the, this small fiber neuropathy? I I thought it was something that was sort of debatable whether or not it even exists, and and this is almost like a specific condition or a a vague condition that some people have, and that's that's what their pain gets blamed on. Can you kind of characterize it a little bit for us? Sure. Um, so it definitely exists, um, and it's really just that it's a it's a pathology of the nerves um, that carry pain and temperature sensation. Those are the small fibers. So. That's why if you want to confirm it, then you do the skin biopsy. So clinically, you know, they'll complain of it's it's usually still length dependent, not always, but the majority are still length dependent. So they should still have a, a sort of classic story for neuropathy. So it should be distal, symmetric, start in their toes. It's just that the symptoms are, are less numbness than they are sort of hypersensitivity. So they'll often be really sensitive, complain of, you know, the, their socks are painful, the bed sheets are painful, their their feet feel swollen all the time, they're burning, they're prickling. Um, everything is really sensitive. So, it tends, you know, they have trouble sensing hot and cold. Um, so it's really pain and temperature complaints that they'll have. Um, but they should still sort of be length-dependent and be symmetric. And often their exam may show that they actually have some abnormal sensation distally, either to temperature or to pin. It's just that their reflexes will be normal, their vibration will be normal, their strength will be normal. Um, so I think unless you do the, those specific modalities, I usually just use a pin, um, then then you may not pick up anything. And it may not be picked up as a deficit. They may just say it hurts more over their feet. And, and to some people who aren't looking for it or who aren't, aren't wanting to believe that this person with a lot of pain may have a real diagnosis, they sort of just cast that off. So um, it's definitely real. Um, but I think the reason it's it's thrown around as something possibly not real is because it it could be overdiagnosed um, if people aren't doing it sort of systematically. So I think if someone just has pain all over, um, and and their exam is normal and their complaints can be fairly nonspecific, it's hard to know if that person has a small fiber neuropathy. And if you're trying to figure it out, then maybe in that person you do want to do the skin biopsy. Um, it it definitely exists. I think it's just hard to diagnose and it's potentially the people who actually have it may be underdiagnosed and it may be sort of clinically overdiagnosed. Is it, is it possible that that may, is it possible that the small fiber neuropathy may be related to uh, maybe other poorly understood pain conditions like fibromyalgia? I think it's, I think there's overlap and, and there's a lot of, um, people talking about this, there are starting to be a few studies coming out looking at the coexistence of the two um, and and some studies saying that basically in people who are diagnosed as fibromyalgia, that there is a higher than expected number of patients who have documented small fiber neuropathy. Um, there was one that actually came out from the pathology department at MGH a few years ago. It was small numbers, but they basically marketed to people in the community who had fibromyalgia to join the they, and they did skin biopsies, um, and then they had age-matched controls. And the incidence of um, small fiber neuropathy compared to the controls in the fibro, fibromyalgia patients was much higher. I think it was like 30 or 40% versus 3% or something like that. Um, and so I don't know if that means that fibromyalgia is small fiber neuropathy or 
small fiber neuropathy is somehow a trigger for a fibromyalgia syndrome, and maybe there are other triggers, or or even what fibromyalgia is, or you know what what is probably the easiest to believe is just that a subset of people who are labeled as fibromyalgia based on their clinical complaints actually have un, unrecognized small fiber neuropathy. Right. Um, yeah, because so, I, I think with with fibromyalgia there is there are some studies with CSF and neurotransmitters and there's sort of unfavorable changes in the um, in the in the system for for moderating pain. So there there might be something right. more than just um, just at the small fibers going on in those patients. Yeah, it's... I do right. want to um, I do want to move on to a couple other other areas. Um, Stuart, Stuart, you've been uh, you. I know you wanted to ask about B12 a little bit. Yeah, I just wanted to ask briefly about the cutoff for B12. So if we get a B12 level and let's say it's in that nebulous region, 200 to 400, <laughs> is is it reasonable yeah. just to treat them, or should we should we throw off a methylmalonic acid and or homocysteine? So this might be sort of user bias, but I do send it an MMA. Oh. Um, I only send an MMA. I you can you can treat them, but usually people are coming to me looking for a cause of their neuropathy. Okay. Um, and I would even argue that it's you know since you can't prove causation, you sort of want to fix what you can fix and then see how they do over time. So a lot of times in neurology, you can't really know everything just from one visit. I mean, you get the benefit of exams over time and, and sort of how the patient does over time and how other factors evolve. So um, if you think it may be contributing, then I think um, sort of doing it prudently, you know, documenting that that actually is abnormal and that's why you're treating it and then watching it normalize in the future. If their neuropathy gets worse, then it's probably not related. Um, you know, but if it if it if it was getting worse and then it gets better or stabilizes, then maybe that was contributing. But if their B12 was normal in that range and their MMA was normal, I probably wouldn't treat them. So an, a methylmalonic acid lab test costs about 100 to about $250. I think B12 is a lot cheaper than that. Well, I, I mean, that's part of the, So f practically speaking in clinic, a lot of the times if if someone's B12 level comes back in the 200s or sometimes in the 300s, I will just say, take some over-the-counter B12 and we'll check your levels again in a couple months. A lot of the times then their levels come back super therapeutic <laughs> right. and I just right. stop, I stop it and check again in six months. Yeah. But it's just like most of the time they've just got in labs. Uh -huh. So am I going to send them back to the labs and stick them again when I could just prescribe right. a pill that's pretty well tolerated? But I, I see what right. you're I see what you're saying there. Um, yeah, well, especially so I think I, I don't know that there's a right answer, but it is it it is easy to just to just treat them and then recheck a level. I would say to recheck a level because a lot of the time it comes back like greater than eighteen hundred if they've been taking B twelve every day for like a year. Right, right. right. Yeah. So let's I say mean, this: think... you follow the Watto algorithm where you overtreat the B twelve deficiency <laughs> and then they're super therapeutic. <laughs> And, and the patient still has painful neuropathy. So let's let's use, say, diabetic polyneuropathy as, as our example. So what is what is your algorithm to actually go through the treatment? Um, so it depends first sort of what, el what else they're on, what other medical problems they have, and then how extensive the neuropathy is. So some people definitely will use things like topical lidocaine if it's a very 
sort of focal complaint. Um, a lot of patients will really mostly be bothered by symptoms later in the day, maybe as they're laying down to go to sleep. And in that case, it may be logistically reasonable to just have them apply something topically. If they're having pain all day and they're in shoes, then that's probably not a good solution. Um, that's really the only topical agent I use. Topical capsaicin um, has been studied in some sort of post-herpetic neuralgia and some HIV neuropathy cases, but um, not for, for other types of neuropathy. Um, so the oral meds that I typically use, so gabapentin, uh, the tricyclics, and then sometimes uh, duloxetine or venlafaxine, but I usually start with gabapentin unless they have a reason um, for some, unless they have a reason not to be on it. I mean, I found the tricyclics to be pretty helpful just sort of anecdotally, and it's been shown in studies that those are helpful too, but they tend to have way more side effects, and oftentimes the dose that you can get up to is limited by either side effects or interactions with their medications, um, and they tend to be elderly and tend to be on other blood pressure medications, um, and then they're at risk for orthostatic hypotension. Um, in people who do have trouble sleeping at night, I actually like to use those. I often will start a low dose of amitriptyline um, because they want that side effect of sedation that it typically causes, um, and then that might be enough to just get them comfortable overnight. I mean, I really try to tailor it to to when they're bothered by their symptoms. I mean, I tell them that, you know, neuropathy basically causes, this is a little bit simple, but it basically causes two categories of symptoms. So one is the loss of, of things, so numbness difficulty with balance, and then the other sort of positive things or hyper-excitable things like tingling, pain, discomfort. And the medications are meant to treat the, the enhanced sort of peripheral excitability, but really aren't going to do anything to bring their sensation back or to help their balance. And so I think that's important to clarify. People will come back and say, you know, that medication wasn't working. I fell like three times this week. And I think it's just important to reinforce right, for right. that. They just need things like physical therapy, they need to make sure there are no loose rugs in their home, they need to be evaluated for an assistive device if they need it. You know, they have to be careful and the medication isn't really going to replace that. It just helps them symptomatically. And so I tell them, you know, it really doesn't matter to me what you take. Um, so I sort of start a basic dose and then just let them titrate it as, as tolerated or as needed um, and then talk about it at the next visit. So gabapentin, I usually just start at a low dose, either 300 milligrams or sometimes even 100 milligrams and then just have them titrated. I usually start it at night and then have them add a dose during the day and then if they need it, a, a third dose. Um, and then there's some evidence that combining gabapentin and a tricyclic actually gets you some sort of synergistic effect where you can get heightened response without being on high doses of either. Um, oh. And so if you worry that you're going to max out from a side effect standpoint, then you can start a second low-dose agent, and that may help them. Um, and then, you know, I usually start those before going to things like Cymbalta or uh, Venlafaxine. Grace, I've had a couple patients come to me. They had heard from a friend alpha-lipoic acid worked, and... I actually looked it up, and there there's actually a small study looking at patients with diabetic polyneuropathy showing that there was some decrease in pain and maybe even some prevention of progression of their diabetic neuropathy. Is that something that, that you're doing in your practice? Do you think there's any good evidence behind it? Um, I mean, that what you mentioned is basically the only evidence behind it, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's only for diabetic neuropathy, so... A lot of patients 
will have already heard about it. They've Googled it or someone's mentioned it to them. I tell them it's fine. Um, you know, they anecdotally patients have told me that, that they feel better on it. I don't know. Um, you know, the reason part of the, any pain trial is, is it's hard to prove anything really helps because there's a huge placebo right. effect for anything. Right. So, um, proving a difference between two groups is always really hard. So anecdotally people seem to like it. I think that the studies, some of the ones that you might be talking about, um, for diabetic neuropathy, there is an improvement in symptoms. Um, and they tested a few doses and really the doses were equally effective. So I usually just recommend the lowest dose that was tested, which is 600 a day. Um, it, it can be pretty expensive too. I've had patients tell me, or sometimes it's hard to find. Um, and then, you know, that I guess would be the only medication that would potentially modify the neuropathy as opposed to just treats the symptom. Um, so, you know, it, it may be doing something if patients want to take it. Um, you know, I encourage them to do so. If I do have patients who can't tolerate other medications or they just don't want to take other prescription medications, then sometimes I'll mention it to them. I, my, my tact there is usually I tell them about it. I say 600 milligram tabs. You can probably buy 90 tablets for somewhere in the $20 range and, you know, buy one bottle. It'll last you three months. If, if you feel no different after three months, then don't buy another bottle. So it's a low, low cost investment. So I think that's a good way to go about it. I mean, it's, it's whatever they, they're feeling on it, right? I mean, I tell people, I can't really tell you what, whether this medication is going to work for you or not. I mean, we know that based on studies, they work in a population, but each person's a little bit different um, in terms of what helps them and what they can tolerate and, and what they need to based on when their symptoms bother them. So I think that's a good, that's a good uh, time period. Well, I think we've gone through a lot of a lot of neuropathy here. We've gone through the treatment, the diagnosis. Paul and Stuart, any final questions for Grace before we uh, before we wrap up here? Not for me. That was that was extraordinarily helpful. Thank you so much. No, I I, I don't have any other any other questions at this time. Okay, Grace, do you want to give <laughs> Grace? Do you want to give two or three take home points for our listeners about uh, distal symmetric polyneuropathy? Can I, I can just, I feel like I've talked a lot, so I'm just going to leave you with one quote um, that that I think about often in my clinic and that I feel like definitely applies to this topic. So okay. um, when I was a resident, one of my mentors and now colleagues who also does neuromuscular medicine, um, I just spent all this time doing this exam, the sensory exam on a patient and was getting nowhere. And he pulled me out of the room and he said, whenever this happens, you just have to remember one thing stop the madness. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, this is something that was told to me when I was a trainee. You know, I love a good sensory exam, but there are some patients where you just can't get anywhere. They're thinking too hard about it or they're, they're nervous or they're embellishing or something. And he's like, if it's been minutes and you don't feel like you're getting any useful information, just, just give up and stop the madness. So I think about that often. Um, and I don't mean that to sort of be um, to say not to take patients seriously, but, but, you know, you, people think the neuro exam is sort of daunting and takes a long time. And I have all my patients undressed and, you know, this all adds up for a new patient visit. But if you really do it, um, in a very targeted way, it really doesn't need to take that long. And if it is taking you that long, you're probably not doing it right. And it's not worth your time at that point. Um, so I'll just say, remember, stop the madness. 
Very good advice. I'll, I'll need to remember that. I'll probably remember that in clinic tomorrow. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go into the outro, and then uh, we'll sign off. And Grace, uh, you you want to sign off for with us? Sure. It's pretty self-explanatory. All right. <laughs> go to practice a couple times. Good night. <laughs> Actually, when we first started doing this, it took us like so. Oh my gosh, it was it was mess. so pathetic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's this surprisingly, Grace. This is us doing pretty well tonight. <laughs> <laughs> this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. So to do that, we want your input. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on our pages on Facebook or on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And this is Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, and good night. I remain Paul Williams. Oh, hi, Paul. Grace. Grace Barrett. <laughs> Good night. Thanks, Grace. <laughs> All right. We'll fix that in post. <laughs> <laughs>